start the podcast, I want to plug our New York City screening series, Pure Nonfiction at IFC Center. Each Tuesday, we host a documentary followed by a conversation with a filmmaker or other special guests. The series was previously known as Stranger Than Fiction, but changed its title in 2019 to align with our podcast. We've just announced the winter season that starts on February 5th with the roller skating documentary United Skates, followed by a live conversation with the filmmaker Tina Brown and a key skater in the film. Two films from the Sundance Film Festival that I discussed last episode will come to our series. Alex Gibney will show a sneak preview of his new film, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, about a billion-dollar tech company built on fraud. And Allison Clayman will be in person for her documentary, The Brink, about Steve Bannon. All this happens in February and March, at Pure Nonfiction at New York's IFC Center. For tickets, season passes, or more information, go to purenonfiction.net. I hope to see you there. Now, welcome to our podcast, Pure Nonfiction, where we interview documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for Doc NYC. On this episode, we hear a conversation called Getting Personal, recorded at the Doc NYC Festival last November. On the panel, I interviewed four filmmakers about their films that test the boundaries of keeping journalistic distance. I'll introduce each speaker as we hear from them. first film discussed is On Her Shoulders, about the activist Nadia Murad. She grew up in northern Iraq as part of the Yazidi community, a non-Muslim ethnic minority. She was 19 when ISIS took her hostage with over 6,000 other Yazidi women and subjected them to repeated rape. After three months, Nadia managed a rare escape. Now she campaigns to raise attention for Yazidis, She possesses a beauty and composure that make her a compelling subject for journalists. Filmmaker Alexandria Bombach documents the toll it takes on Nadia to tell her traumatic story over and over. How did you manage to escape? Will you ever go back to your village? And when you think about the men who raped you, what do you want to happen to them? Did you at any point try to talk to them? Did you try to resist? Could you tell him no? They killed your mother as well, I think. Last fall... Long after the film On Her Shoulders was completed, Nadia was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. I asked Alexandria how she met Nadia and embarked on this film. Yeah, um, Riot, the production company, reached out to me in July of 2016, and by then Nadia had been campaigning for a good eight months already, um, and they wanted to make a short film about her, and then I immediately jumped on the project because I had seen her give her speech at the UN Security Council in December of 2015, which was kind of the the spark of what made her the face of the Yazidis. And I was really interested in doing um, a story about how she has to repeat her story over and over again. Um, But then when I met her, it was just um, so compelling and actually really confronting how she was 
uh, interviewed by journalists and these testimonies that she had to give over and over again and how I saw it just took pieces of her every single time. So um, fought for it to be a feature length film and eventually we made a feature instead. So you pr identified pretty early on that that's the the uh, aspect that you wanted to make a big part of this film is is the the repetition of these stories. Exactly, because I think um, I think um, a lot of the times we could have you could have gone into this film just making a, a story about her captivity and her experience um, in with ISIS and and kind of reflecting on her activism and, and showing her. <laughs> Um, as a more heroic figure, but I think that lets us off, off the hook as an audience in so many ways. And um, this was the first time I was getting a behind the scenes of advocacy in the UN and these kind of meetings and seeing the relationship between a journalist and a survivor of this kind of trauma. And I think it was important, or I felt it was important to um, show the other side of what her work actually is. Um, because I think going in, people think it's a film about Nadia Murad, but they, when they leave, they realize it's a film about us. What was the process for you of you know, being able to get into Nadia Murad's world? Because she is someone who would understandably be you know, protective, who has a life experience that's you know, hard to bridge. Well, I, going in, I was, of course, very nervous to um, have the conversation of what this documentary would be and how we would talk about access. And But at that time, they were saying yes to every interview, yes to every journalist, and um, kind of going at this blinding speed. Um, and so when I talked to her and Murad and, and tried to explain that this wasn't going to be the normal interaction that they're used to having, where... Um, a journalist interviews them, um, does a few B-roll shots and leaves. This was me going to be around the whole time. And Nadia just was like, yeah, sure. And that that instant um, yes was actually really heartbreaking to me because then I realized, you know, it's not because I, you know, <laughs> persuaded her in some way or that I'm special or that we had some sort of special relationship. She was just saying yes to everything out of this deep survivor's guilt and, um, you know, feeling that if anything can help, I'm being going to say yes to it. So um, that's what started the relationship and that's how it felt. It, it, but it got to the point where I just really had to gauge myself when to put down the camera and not go by um, what Nadia was saying because, you know, from really early in, in the morning to very late at night, she was working and so I had if she had any kind of time to herself, um, those are the moments that you really hope for in a documentary where you're like, oh, I want to show her in the downtime, but she barely had any. So I really had to um, think about those moments and be like, okay, I'm just going to let her be alone and not try and film her right now. And your heart is with my heart And my heart is with your heart Carry your heart Deep inside where you are, shut my eyes close to me. The second film discussed is The Sentence, about a Latina woman in Michigan named Cindy Shank, who is sentenced to 15 years in prison for being the girlfriend of a drug dealer. Cindy wasn't accused of criminal activity herself, so the sentence felt especially harsh. When Cindy was sentenced, her boyfriend had already been dead for six years. She had moved on, married someone new, and gave birth 
to three girls. But the federal judge was bound to mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Cindy's 15-year sentence meant that she would miss her daughter's childhood. This story couldn't be more personal for filmmaker Rudy Valdez, who is Cindy's brother. When Cindy went to prison, Rudy was pursuing a career in New York as an actor, but he refocused his time on filming her family in Michigan. He still gets choked up talking about her case. I asked Rudy when he realized that his home movies would become a documentary and how his family members reacted. And when you see the, the, the write-up on it, it usually says, you know, Rudy took a decade to make this film, and that's completely true. But um, I always say it, it's something that had been really burning in me for much longer. You know, growing up, uh, I always felt very disenfranchised, and, and I felt like I didn't have a voice, and I felt like I, my community was overlooked, and my family was overlooked, and all of these things. And, and I always kept wondering, you know, what is, what's... What's going to change? Like, how's who's going to step up and give us a voice and amplify our voice? And um, you know, fast forward to my sister getting 15 years for a first-time nonviolent offense, and looking around the courtroom and and realizing nobody was going to do that, and that I I had to fight. I didn't know at that point what that meant, but I knew I had to fight. And um, that day, I. Uh, the, the following day, I went to her house. She had been whisked away. We didn't know where she was. And there was a little handy cam sitting there. And I just started filming the girls because the one thing I knew at that point I could do for my sister uh, while I figured out what was happening with her on the legal end was I can document her children. I can let her watch them grow up in, in some way. I knew she would have pictures. I knew that she would have phone calls. But I needed her to watch them live and, and run and play and laugh and cry and all of those things. Like, I don't know what it was, but I started doing that. Can I ask you a question about that? Were, yeah. were, were you going to be able to show her the video while she was in prison, or you imagined that 15 years when she got out of prison, this would be... Yeah, I, I was never going to be able to show it to her. It was going to be the long game. I play the long game in so many things in life, and that, that this was this thing that I said, when she comes out, whenever that is, I want her to watch them grow up. And... Um, I was doing this for a while, and I was living in New York the entire time, so I'd fly back whenever I could to capture birthdays or moments or special things, and her oldest daughter, Autumn, was having her first dance recital, and I flew back, and I remember distinctively, like, the plane ticket was $320 to go back, and I had, like, $580 in my bank account, and I was like, I have to... I almost didn't go, which, which haunts me to this day, because this was the trip that I went back and I was filming Autumn Get Ready, and it's the first scene in the film, and my sister calls completely organically, completely unexpected. This call is from a federal prison. Hello? Well, not yet, hold on. Are you there? Okay. Here. Hello, Mom. Autumn? What? And she says this line to her oldest daughter. She says, do you know what mommy's going to do when you go to dance? I'm going to lay down in my bed. I'm going to close my eyes. And I'm going to think about you. That line changed my life. It made me realize that um, I had an opportunity to tell a story that you don't normally get to see about the children left behind, about the families left behind, about the, the true ramifications of these sentences. And, and I quit everything. 
I was a teacher, I was a writer, I was an actor. I quit everything and I didn't know what it meant, but I thought in that moment, I'm gonna tell this story and I'm gonna figure out how to tell this story. And I dove into documentary filmmaking. This was my film school. This was my, it literally changed my entire life. And, and you know, in a weird way, it wasn't my family's first rodeo. Like I said, I was an actor, and like most failed actors, I have a one-man show that I wrote. And um, <laughs> it was all about the things that had happened to my family prior to all of this. You know, we'd have had a rough go of it, and the, the sort of main thesis of that play was I'm gonna take all the things that, that have happened and I'm gonna make something good out of them. That's what I promised my family with that play. And when I started filming this, that was what I told them. I said, if you're open, if you're honest, if you trust me, if you let me tell the story, I will make something good. The third film is Minding the Gap, about skateboarders in their 20s. They are a diverse trio, white, black, and Asian, including the filmmaker, Bing Liu. The three bond over troubled relationships with their fathers. Now, as they enter adulthood, they want to break the cycle of domestic abuse in their families. Here is Bing's friend, Zach, who becomes a father himself during the film. I've never been able to deal with myself because I'm so busy. I'm not even convincing other people. I'm convincing myself that I'm a good person or I feel like the clown, almost, you know? You paint up your face and you put on your act for everybody. And you let that act become you. Bing Liu had been making skateboarding videos since he was a teenager. I asked him how that transitioned into Minding the Gap. I was like 23. I was living in Chicago. Um, and I wanted my next side project to be um, this thing where I went around and interviewed skateboarders about the past and trauma and you know, how we grow up into better men. Um, and you know, it was sort of this ensemble film that I leaned on connections I'd made over the years you know, in, in the skate community. And then a year and a half in, I came back to Rockford. And that was actually the first time I met Kier. Um, he knew who I was, you know, but I didn't really, he was seven years younger. I didn't really know who he was. The young black man that we see in the trailer. Exactly. Um, and then, so I started following him. He was just really magnetic. Um, and he was really emotionally open. And um, the way that he talked about abuse and his relationship with his father was really unprocessed. And that was something very new. I think a lot of people dismissed abuse in the past, um, like the other character, Zach. Um, but then quickly I found out that Zach was about to become a dad, so I started following him too. The fourth and final speaker is Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli. She made the film Free Solo with her husband, Jimmy Chin. They follow mountain climber Alex Hanold as he attempts to scale the 3,200-foot sheer granite cliff of El Capitan. He aims to do it alone, without ropes, a method known as free soloing, which means any mistake is likely fatal. Here's Alex Hanold in the film. So it's not like I'm just pushing and pushing and pushing until something terrible happens. I don't look at it like with that perspective. But maybe that's why it's dangerous for me. Maybe I'm too close to it and I can't tell that I'm speeding towards a cliff. The filmmakers Chai and Jimmy have deep knowledge of the risks involved. Their previous film, Meru, was about a life-threatening expedition that Jimmy was a part of. 
In both Meru and Free Solo, the films are more than just about mountain climbing. They are explorations of relationships. I asked Chai how Free Solo got started. So we began Free Solo right when we're finishing up Meru. And, you know, Alex and Jimmy have known each other for 10 years, at least 10 years. And Alex is, you know, 33 now. So Jimmy kind of watched him grow up through his 20s. Um, they were together on Alex's first trip out of the country. It was on an expedition. And Alex is just like a fascinating character. You know, we, and the, it was always the same story that interested us, which was that as a kid, he began climbing without ropes because it was scarier to speak to somebody else than it was to go out by himself and hence without a partner who could belay him or support him. He was just that shy a person. It, I mean, it was excruciating for him. You know, he was that shy. He was intimidated of vegetables, as funny as that may sound. Um, public speaking, intimacy in any way, um, and speaking to strangers. And over the course of his, you know, career, like he, he has taught himself how to eat vegetables. He's taught himself how to hug. He's taught himself how to move through fear. And his entire practice is about recognizing your fear and finding a way through it. And that always interests us because it was like just such an impact. Like I, both Jimmy and I could identify and empathize with that type of fear, maybe not as extreme, um, but it was inspiring to us to see this man have this courage and move through his fears. But yes, it was an extremely dangerous film to make. Um, and it was a very intimate experience, not only because he was our friend um, and a very dear friend at that, it was that the stakes were just simply so high that you know there was always an ethical question about with the cam like are the cameras going to make him more likely to fall and accepting that or not accepting that is it still a worthwhile story to make to tell and we always believed in Alex and this idea of his life of intention like he lives every day to the fullest and you know, clearly we did not think he would fall or else he would not be there. Um, but because of those stakes, it was just a very, very like intimate trust was about, it was, everything was about trust. We trusted, had to trust him to make the right decisions. He had to trust us to make the right decisions. And, you know, the hardest part of it for him was not so much the climbing. He's a professional climber. He's done this all his life. He's shot with Jimmy for 10 years. It was the intimacy because here is this guy who's scared of intimacy and suddenly he had you know, three people living in his van with him. And I mean it, like living, like sometimes we would sleep on the floor. Um, in a van. In a van. <laughs> it was quite comfortable. Um, and he would be cooking for us. I mean, it was like we just became this little unit and he trusted us that these questions were important and that thinking about his child, looking at his fears, documenting you know, him falling in love, which is what happens, um, was something we needed for to make the film. And so, so yeah, so it was just a very intimate, it was, about, it was always about this trust. All these films, have, you've described them in different ways. Uh, your life becomes intertwined with uh, your subject's uh, life. Uh, often in talking about documentary film, we talk about having keeping some critical distance between uh, us and our subjects um, in, uh, you know, in, in order to tell their story uh, properly. Um, I, uh, 
I, I wonder where critical distance comes up in um, in these films. Um, Rudy, let me start with you. Uh, because uh, maybe of all these films, Critical Distance would even seem to be the hardest in, in, when it comes to making a film about your sister. Was there was there any moment in this process, either uh, shooting or in the edit room, where you felt you needed to have some critical distance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, at the beginning, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing. I was literally just pointing the camera at what I thought was was important. And um, at the same time, I dove into documentary film on the other side, and I became a PA and a sound mixer and additional camera, all these things throughout the years. And what happened was um, I started to understand the weight and the responsibility of a documentary filmmaker by working on other people's films because I was working with a lot of different producers on a lot of different kinds of projects, and I kept... Um, even though I was oftentimes not even the lowest person on the call sheet, but sometimes I wasn't on it, like I was literally an intern, like I wasn't supposed to be at most of these things, and I would find myself talking to producers and saying, should we be doing this? Should we, is this okay? Because I, I kept saying, I'm doing this with my family, and I would never do that to my family. And, and so I kept building this. And by that you mean just filming people going through something very difficult or, or pushing them with a question? Or? Pushing them with a question, but also pushing. You know, pushing in, in different ways or overproducing. Like, I don't know, there's, there's this fine line of like observational documentary and, and being there because, you know, I just had a tough time. Anytime something was felt like I was, I was not giving the person the space, as you were saying, um, I always thought about my family, and I was like, is this the time when I would say, I need to give them space because above everything, they're going through something? And um, I always go back to this. There were many, many occasions uh, during the course of filming where, uh, where I struggled with it, and the first time was when uh, I'm filming my father, and he breaks down crying. And um, up until that point, I'd only seen him cry, I think, twice in my life. And I'm looking through this viewfinder and my father is breaking down in front of me and everything in my soul is saying, put down the camera, go and hug your dad, tell him it's going to be okay, be a good son. And then something else started fighting in me and it said, hold your shot. It said, you made a promise to them that if they're open and they're honest and they're vulnerable, that you will make something good and for the greater good. So my critical distance came through the lens. You know, one of the things we talk about in criminal justice reform is touch. And, and they're trying to take that away, taking away touch visits and installing video cameras and all this stuff. My critical distance was that in order for me to tell this story, I had to have a barrier between me and my family for a decade. And I created a critical distance because I couldn't become wrapped up or involved in what was happening emotionally because I would never have been able to make the film. So I had, my critical distance was when that starts happening to my father or to my niece or to my mother, I started saying, hold your shot. Are you in focus? Do you have enough battery? Do you have enough cards? How is the sound? Hold your shot. Do you have enough battery? Do you have enough cards? And I literally had to create this mantra in my head or else I would, you can see I'm a basket case. I'm an emotional basket case. I would not have been able to make this film. And then on the second level of that, 
you know, I was an editor for many years, you know, as I was learning this entire thing, when it came to cutting this film, I knew that I could not edit it. I knew that I, I already knew why I loved my sister, why I loved my dad, why, what brought me into this. I need somebody to create that connective tissue that makes the, the love for them or the, the, the reason you want to watch their story more, more tangible. I needed somebody else to create that connective tissue because I, I knew I would get to it too quickly. So I hired an amazing editor, Vary Lieberman. I don't know if she's here. I don't think she is. Um, but she's amazing, and she really let me take that step back and, and do the initial connection, connecting. Alexandria, let me ask you about critical distance, because in a way, we're, we're watching a process of journalism sometimes in your films where, uh, uh, where journalists are meeting Nadia Murad, spending a half-hour interview with her, and asking her, the deepest, hardest questions you could ever uh, ask uh, someone, um, and and then saying goodbye after that half hour. Um, you're spending more time uh, with her and and able to, you know, make us be more sensitive to to what that experience is of of having to uh, to retell that story. How did you uh, cope with this idea of of critical distance with your subject? First, well, um, it's like taking all of my energy not to cry when Rudy talks. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was all sobbing here. Yeah, I'm just like really trying to focus on that. So, um, I mean, I it's I think this is you know we talk about critical distance to you know try and tell the best story and have this relationship um, work out to tell the best story. But I mean, it's so painful to um, at one point in the film, Nadia's about to get. Um, a, no, or, or she's about to be named a goodwill ambassador to the UN, and she's the first survivor of human trafficking to be named so, and she's such a young woman. Um, and it's an emotional um, moment for her, and it's also very conflicting because you know all these awards and accolades are very strange for someone who's just wanting people to help and um, you know make a difference for Yazidis and not necessarily always just focus on her. And she's a very reluctant activist in a lot of ways. Um, in the morning, uh, she was getting ready to go to the ambassador ceremony. Um, I was filming her getting ready, and then we both sat down, and she kind of laughs, and she says, you know, today's very hard for me, and she rarely ever looked at me in the camera. She just had gotten so used to me being there, she just went about everything. This was the first time she really addressed me as I was filming um, and said, and I asked her, I saw her on her phone earlier, so I knew she was messaging um, her existing family members, and I was like, is it because you wish your family was here? And she looked at me and kind of just broke down and said, I really, I wish my mom was here. And I, um, you know, it took everything in me to, you know, not, um, you know, drop the camera or just um, start shaking. And, or, and the distance between me and her at this table where I could have just put the camera down and hugged this person who's starting to cry. Um, but instead, I made sure I was in focus and that the exposure was right and she was in frame. And I think um, I heard this recently on another panel, but it was such a good point that you kind of lose a piece of your own humanity in that distance. Um, and I think making the film was um, difficult, but nothing was more difficult than the edit when I really you know, had a moment to um, unbottle all these emotions because then you're just trying to bottle everything up and do your job. But um, it's a real 
um, you know, disrupting thing to your own <laughs> humanity and emotions when you're not able to just act like a normal human being and you have to have this distance between you and a person that you really care about. Uh, Bing, you're also talking to your friends, uh, 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 in some scenes to your brother and to uh, your mother um, uh, about tough things that they've gone through, sometimes as they're uh, going through them. Um, uh, how did you operate in those situations? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, first of all, I think the stakes were a little bit lower than, you know, the right, what's right for this woman who's gone through all this stuff and, you know, your relationship with your family and some literally life and death, you know, for you. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the, the relation, there was always just moments where, um, you know, uh, I just felt like, okay, we're, this is this, we're getting to a point where the, the boundaries are getting crossed. Um, Zach asked me to buy him beer one time. He's like, I'll pay you back. And I was like, ah, this feels weird. Um, but he's since probably he going to... Since he has a drinking problem. Since he has a drinking problem. But he's going to buy it anyway. And he's always, you know, he's had a drinking problem for a long time. I don't know. What, what is this going to do? Um, What'd you do? I bought him beer. I bought him... It was... <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, like early on in filming, you know, I asked Kier, like, well, you know, who do you... Who are the men that you look up to in your life? And he was like, you're probably not going to put this in being, but it's you. So, you know, like realizing things, and th that's not going to go away. You know, I can't tell him, don't do that. We got to, <laughs> you know, uh, remain objective. Um, so I was just thinking a lot about, you know, e this is going to happen all the time, you know, where relationships get muddled. But when does it have a consequence that's actually, you know, worth thinking about deeply? And that didn't happen in the film until um, one of the characters told me that, you know, uh, she was getting abused. Um, so then I had to consider, well, the way that I move forward um, is going to affect, you know, her safety, possibly, you know, the future of her relationship with this other man, the child they're raising together. Um, and so I went through a series of things. That's what ultimately led me to be in the film. Um, I felt like, and I feel like this happens in personal films. Um, once you... Uh, like make it part, once you start to reveal the filmmaking, then you have more license to cross that boundary. And you know, if you explain why you're doing that. And so I think that's why I interviewed my mom and brother. Um, but my mom and brother, I mean, it was just, you know, over the many years, it was just like two shoots with my brother and one interview with my mom. And so, you know, I think it wasn't, um, it was like they knew what they were getting into. Um, uh, Chai is, you know, we've described the subject of your film, Alex and Old. It is putting his life at risk. Even in the trailer uh, we watched, you can uh, see Jimmy uh, reflecting on that, uh, asking the question that that you were referring to before. Uh, you know, does it does it make sense to be making this film? Does the very making of the film uh, increase uh, the risk? The project was going on for uh, several months. There's uh, there's money invested there's time invested you know at some point does that become a pressure on your subject to to do something that is um a, a high risky uh endeavor um how did you negotiate how did you and jimmy negotiate that along the way well in order to proceed with the film we kind of came up with the guidelines we were comfortable with and the primary one was to try to insulate Alex from all of our feelings, from production, from anything to do with you know, money. Um, 
and in a very real physical way, it's like you see it in the film where Mike, there's a cameraman who can't watch. Okay, and he's like looking down, but he's not next to Alex, right? Because if he was next to Alex, he would maybe more subtly just look off to the side because it's like this mirror effect. If we get nervous, he gets nervous. Um, and just we're adding, we're, we're putting something in there. And I think it's like, it's the observer effect. It always will happen. But we were trying to control these emotions quite physically in front of Alex. But, um, you know, I think it always comes down to judgment and trusting your own judgment. And, you know, hearing all of you guys speak, I think a lot about like the first film I ever made, which was in Kosovo. And it followed six friends after the war in Kosovo. And they were young, we were all the same age. And, you know, I think it is really hard to look through that lens when you, when, you know, or in, in, in Free Solo, like when, Alec, when Alex's girlfriend is telling him that she would, pref like, d does he take her into consideration when he free solos? And he says no. You know, and on one hand, I think that the camera, I'm very aware that the camera is facilitating that exchange for the most often. Like there's a, a situation we've created by pointing the camera in it. And on the other hand, like, I'm like, well, of course we've got to hold the shot, but I, like, I always, when I start to feel that feeling, when the tear drops down my face, like, those are the golden moments for me, because I know, I know that's the truth, like, that's the emotional truth in that moment, and I always log it, being like, that's, we just got the scene we needed. We can also now turn off the camera and move on. You know, always thinking about structure and what's exactly necessary. Like, can we, how do we create enough space for our subject? Um, which sounds weird because it's such an exterior thing, but it's actually quite a present thing for, for I think, for all of us. So um, it makes me wonder, do you think that turning off the camera, knowing when to do that, is as important as t turning on the camera? Sure, but I, I also think that, you know, we all make observational documentaries, so it's also at a certain point the camera is just there. It's always there, and they trust you as a human behind the camera. But yes, like, they're, they're certainly, especially in, like, um, war situations, that, like, it's, you just, sometimes you really have to turn off the camera. Um, but if the camera's on, it has to be on for a reason. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, ask each of you about the experience of showing your subjects uh, the film uh, once it was uh, finished. Um, uh, Alexandria, can you uh, talk about when and how you showed Nadia Murad the, uh, on her shoulders? Yeah, that was really scary. Um, makes me like shake even thinking about it. Because <laughs> um, obviously she was just such an, the, the only opinion I really cared about was Nadia's. Um, and she and I watched the film a few months before the premiere at Sundance and I went to Germany um, to where she was to, to show her and we just watched it on my laptop and, and um, she didn't move the entire time which was really terrifying um, and she speaks English much uh, better now and so she understood everything that was going on and, and she laughed at all the right points um, a few um, you know funny moments in the film which is really encouraging and um, but she was so still I was just like sweating through, through my entire body um, just kind of like feeling her presence watch the film it was really scary um, but then when the the credits started to roll she just like slowly turned to me and said wow powerful um, and I think she was really blown away because she hadn't seen anything done on the work on, and, and you know it was showing her um, doing so many different types of things and really recognizing the work um, that she has to do um, everything she was used to 
was just the retelling and often the sensationalizing of her captivity. And so I think she was really thankful for that. She's really thankful that the film was called On Her Shoulders and not Nadia, um, which meant a lot to me. Um, and I think she was also really surprised because um, I look really disheveled when I'm filming. Um, I look like a total shit show, so I think she was just honestly surprised that I got my shit together. Um, yeah, she was like, wow, you really did something here. Um, yeah, so I was really, really grateful for that moment with her. Um, Rudy, uh, when, when it came time to share with your family uh, your film, what were you concerned about and what was that experience like? Uh, it was interesting because I, you know, over the course of the entire decade of making the film, I never showed any of them a single frame of anything. And we had already heard that we um, were in Sundance and it was going to Sundance already. So I, I flew back, uh, I remember it was right before Christmas. Um, I flew back home and I rented this little theater and I brought just my family members there. <laughs> I literally sat in front of them and I go, so um, I took maybe the worst decade of our life I cut it down to a manageable 85 minutes, uh, color corrected it, and put some beautiful score underneath it. Enjoy. And I sort of walked out of the, the room thinking, like, they're either going to really hate me or they're going to love me after this. But, um, you know, they, they loved it because it was, um, I shouldn't say they loved it. They didn't know what it was. It's, it's, it was interesting for them to watch themselves on camera, and we never really talked about it for, for a while. Um, I remember we had a great response at our premiere at Sundance, and I remember not looking at the audience and looking at them. They were up on the stage with me, and they were completely taken back by the fact that their little story, this little tiny story, is resonating with this giant crowd of people and um white people in sundance white people at sundance and um but just in and since then it's become such a large part of of the overall conversation of criminal justice reform and sentencing reform that i think they're just really proud that their little stories making a difference so uh being you know you you captured all these intense moments of uh, of your friends' lives, uh, uh, including abuse and substance abuse. Um, what was it like for you to share the film with them? Yeah, I feel like Kier's journey was more about, you know, like watching him process all this stuff. Uh, for Zach's journey, it definitely was, you know, capturing his dark moments, you know, as he was experiencing them. Um, I mean, they knew a couple years beforehand that we're gonna like this day was gonna come. We're gonna show them the not so finished film so that they could, um, you know, be ensured that they weren't gonna get misrepresented. Um, and we gave them a choice. You know, you could either like watch it by yourself with me with friends. Um, Zach wanted to watch it just with me and him, so um, we put it on. It was the most nerve. It's probably uh, him and Nina are probably the most nerve wracking to show. Um, and I, you know, I thought, I, I honestly thought he might have turned and punched me in the face, like in the middle of the film. Um, but he did, so I didn't look at him the whole time. I sort of felt like how you felt, just like sweating and nervous. Someone um, might punch you in the face, you should look at them. Yeah. I, well, I didn't, well, I feel like a broken cheek punch. is better than a broken nose, right? It's like the angle is. Uh, okay. But, he thought about it. He literally thought about it. <laughs> I, thought I, I did. Being able to block a punch is better than either of those. <laughs> Um, but he, at the end of the, when the credits started rolling, he's crying. It was the second time I ever saw him cry. 
And uh, he just said, you know, it, it's, that was really powerful. And we talked for a couple hours after that. He was surprised that I was in the film. Um, and he told me he was really anxious because um, he thought it was going to get portrayed worse. But so he's relieved um, when he saw it, actually. Uh, with uh, Nina, she was, uh, you know, she wanted... Um, a, Nina a, is uh, Zach's girlfriend. Zach's girlfriend, yeah. So for that, uh, we had Diane, the producer, and, uh, and another producer, Maggie Bowman, who works with Cartemplin there. And we watched it with her. Uh, and she was like waterworks throughout. Um, I think in hindsight, she had really compartmentalized the relationship and not really process it like forgot about it and in watching it again she fell back in love with Zach you know all the all the good parts of him and how great it was at first and then she was heartbroken again and so um she you know her process of really processing it came throughout this past year and coming out to screenings and hearing women come up to her and you know really validating her experience um and then with Kier I mean it was me him and a mutual friend we watched it in Denver um, and every time he cried on screen, he cried in person. Every time he laughed on screen, he laughed in person. And he was sitting on the same couch. It was sort of like this ratty couch, and I could feel the rumble of both laughter and crying, and it was like this really weird experience. And my mom and brother, I sent them a link. Um, I just I couldn't watch it with them. Uh, and they just told me they were proud of me, and my mom said she understood why I was making the film. Um, uh, Chai, for, uh, for you, I, what was the experience of sh uh, showing the film with Alex and uh, and his girlfriend Sani, who's a big figure uh, in the film, and and what were you most concerned about? What was I most concerned about? Um, I I wasn't. Um, I was most. I don't know. I, I I really believe that you shouldn't show your subjects any material or anything while you're filming because I think it just makes them think about how they look and think about like it just it becomes a self-referential thing. Um, so we invited Alex to see the film, and he had his hoodie over his head, and he was like, I mean, you can imagine what Alex was looking like. And Alex has the exact opposite response that everyone else does, where he is cringing during the first hour of the film. Every time there's a relationship talk, every time you hear something emotional, every time his mother speaks, he's dying. Like, he's like... And then the last 30 minutes of the film... Where he's climbing El Capitan, where, where most human beings are cringing and sweaty palms. When everyone else is freaking out, Alex sits there with this smile and he glows. And so there are a lot of things. So, so that was his response. And I think he was really... I mean, I think he was very surprised and he was kind of amazed at what had happened. And, and then, you know, with Sonny, I asked, I, you know, I wanted to show it to her by herself. Um, and Alex was very wisely decided to watch it with her because I wasn't going to ask him to watch it with her. Like, that's, they have to figure that one out. Um, and they watched it together and she cried, and it, but she really appreciated it. Um, but the thing that really happened when Telluride, when it, when it was first shown, it was late at night and our entire crew was there. Um, Tommy, every cinematographer worked in it, our producers, um, and Sonny, and everyone sat in a row watching this movie just sobbing. Um, because I think there was like a PTSD situation that, that's real. Um, so everyone was reliving it, that we put it all away for so long. But, you know, now that the film is being received and people are watching it and Alex has been out there, like, it makes me think about this thing about the movie where Alex has always done this by himself. That's the point. He's a loner. 
you know. Um, he preferred to be alone. He was scared to be with other people. And suddenly, like, the greatest climb of his life, like, is actually about connection, where he had us there next to him dangling. He had a girlfriend who finally, like, the first woman in his life who was just like, I love you for who you are. This makes me uncomfortable. And now he has all of us who see what he does. And I think it's just been a very, like, Alex is evolving, and this is a lot, but it's also... I don't know, kind of amazing that he's having that experience and being able to share it with other people. I want to thank our four filmmakers, Alexandria Bombach of On Her Shoulders, Rudy Valdez of The Sentence, Bing Liu of Minding the Gap, and Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli of Free Solo. I hope you have the chance to see all of their films, this conversation was recorded at Doc NYC Pro. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. Thanks to the School of Visual Arts and the MFA Social Documentary Program for use of their sound booth. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.